Hi, everybody. This is Tony Khan, the producer and director of Morning Stories from WGBH in Boston. People in over 200 countries have been hearing Morning Stories, and many have sent us some of their stories back. But hauntingly, over the last three years, there's one country that speaks to us again and again, not in its own voice, but through the voices of people that it's touched from all over the world. It touched Mark and Sherry Grashow, for instance, a school teacher and health worker from Brooklyn, New York, who told us the story of how it changed the course of their lives. It touched Dr. Carlo Spagnoli from Italy, who told us on Morning Stories how it taught him what it means to be a doctor. It even held Bonnie Lee from China, a hostage, literally, for months, and still offered her, as she said, kindness and companionship that she never forgot. And as we learned in an email just last week, it showed a listener of ours named Peg Clement, who's now in Jordan, what it means in the midst of the AIDS pandemic in that country to face death with dignity. Well, the country is Zimbabwe. And the story that Peg tells us is about a man who knew how to help and how to ask for help as his time ran out. Today's morning story, his name was Cosmos. Cosmos was sitting on the edge of his cot at the hospice, clothes hanging off of him, head down, dying of AIDS. His first wife had died last year after a short illness, newspaperese in Southern Africa for this disease that no one will pronounce or spell or even write down. He also had lost one daughter to unknown causes. Three children remained from his first marriage, 10, 11, and 13, not currently in school. Cosmos told my friend Anne that he had three last wishes. He wanted to know if she could help. The first wish was to make sure his children got back into school. They would be losing their father soon, and their new mother would be unable to care for them financially. He wanted them to become wards of the state. Can you see to that? Cosmos' second wish was that his children could meet his grandmother. He said he would take them on a bus with some savings, if he had the strength, to ensure that she could pass on family lore and tradition to the kids. Finally, Cosmos wanted a job just long enough to be able to earn the money to pay for his own funeral the coffin, the meal his family should provide the mourners, and cemetery plot, about $8 in all. Anne managed to get his three kids enrolled in school in record time, probably because she was a white woman with enough persistence and gall to keep returning to the ministry with explanations and pleas. The kids are now officially wards of the state, living outside the small home. Cosmos and his wife were not able to keep up. Anne bought four tickets for the Friday evening bus to the grandmother's village. Jammed up in his seat by the crush of his kids and dozens of other travelers, Cosmos managed a wan smile out of the window at his benefactor. And off they went.
When he returned on Monday, Anne played Cosmos as a janitor for four days at a small school for AIDS orphans on the north side of the city. He spent one hour on the bus going, another hour sweeping out the classroom, and another hour returning to the hospice, which took every ounce of his remaining strength. He earned $1.75 for each of those days, still short for the funeral due to the bus fares. He got up the fifth morning and went back once more. Cosmos fulfilled his three wishes in three weeks. The last week of December, he died. He was 30 years old. Ann told me that two minutes after he was born, Cosmos's mother gave birth to a twin. Maybe because there was so little left to give, he was named Osmos without the sea. No one knows what has become of him. His name was Cosmos, today's morning story. I'm here in the studio with Gary Mott. Heartbreaking whenever you hear a 30-year-old dying. The number of years that defines a generation. If you want to figure out how many generations have passed, divide by 30. You've got the society collapsing with the grandchildren and the grandparents having to take care of each other. In many cases, it's the children taking care of the children. Peg also gave me another detail that I didn't put in the story, but that that she told me in a conversation that we had over the phone about how she really began to understand that AIDS in Zimbabwe was for real. People took down the road signs, the metal street signs, to use as handles on the coffin. Mm. So nobody could find their way around. There was no, no more street signs anywhere in any of the neighborhoods. I met this guy who was a painter, and what he had decided to do was paint the names of the street in white paint on the pavement so that at least people could see what street they were on. Anne, who is this person? She did a lot of volunteering there, just a lot. When she first came, she was a little lost as to how to be helpful in the country. The more she got into this, the more townships she went to, the more orphanages. She did teaching. She worked with AIDS grandmothers who were taking care of the grandchildren. She tried to hold hands and hold orphans and just very, very compassionate words as any dying person would need, I think. You know, there were tons and tons of of big-hearted people who arrived at the borders and at the airports to come and try to help. We became a bit of a smaller global village by working alongside and going to the funerals. And, you know, maybe it's good for the Americans and French and Japanese and all these people that came in to help to have held these people. Uh, Yeah, maybe that's the good of it. In the Peace Corps, I was ready to change the whole world wherever I went, but now I'm in my 50s. I count my successes one person at a time now. Yeah. That image, just holding these people Hmm. as something that makes them a part of your life for good. That's something I think we in America, we don't touch Mm -hmm. each other. 
you know, in the workplace, I would love for someone to just come up and grab my shoulder and, you know, say, how you doing, Gare? Or, Gare, that file is waiting for you on that thing. Or, or wake up, Gare. <laughs> you're drooling on your keyboard. <laughs> I hope the people whose stories we've told from Zimbabwe, sort of in the same neighborhood with each other, get in touch with each other. I, I suspect they will. We've been seeing that in our transcript project. Absolutely. Uh, we now have over nine people from around the world, and they have formed a community they, they can't wait for more people to join, but the people who are already there are in touch with each other in a way that just is absolutely reassuring. <laughs> and the transcripts provide a whole other dimension to these stories. Mm-hmm. You were looking back at some old transcripts right. of some older stories. and It's amazing how much we've forgotten. WGBH.org slash morning stories. We've, we've been furiously plopping these transcripts up there. But believe me, <laughs> our, the, the prolificancy... <laughs> is that a word? It is now. <laughs> the Prolificery. Uh, from Liz and Bev and Georgia and all the other volunteers. David. It's tremendous. Find out more about our transcript project by emailing Liz directly. Mm-hmm. Transcripts underscore Liz at bellsouth.net. Right. And you know where to find us. We'll be back soon with another morning story. Take care. I'm glad your series is named Morning Stories. I'm really liking starting off the day like that. Gosh, it's nice. I, you know what I'm worried about, Tony, is that I only have about uh, seven or eight more left in my podcast, and then I'm going to be out of them. Um, is there a store of them anywhere else where I can get some more? I, I think I only have about 15. There are about 160 of them. Woohoo! That is the most beautiful sound I think I've heard all month. <laughs> 